Watch out, lad. I'm coming for that whale. Hi, the seven seas. Why? They won't stop me. Nothing will. Hello, my name is Dylan C. Welcome to the fourth episode of my podcast on literature, Night Reader. Thank you for joining me. We're exploring Herman Melville's Moby Dick, or The Whale, and the different ways it can be approached, the different lenses it could be viewed through. It really depends on the reader, and there's no wrong way to read it. You can hear a lot more insight into that in my prior episodes. I highly recommend you listen to the first few to get a better understanding of what my show's about and what can you expect, what you can expect to hear from me. As always, while reading, we keep in mind the ever-burning questions. What were the writer's ambitions for the reader? Why did they tell this story? And in reading these obscure texts, we don't judge each other's capabilities or depth of knowledge. This book is a perfect example of that very fine division. There's a thirst that cannot be quenched within all of us. A thirst for human experience. It's been an exciting setup so far. Ishmael and his new friend, Kwekwe, are wed in a wonderful friendship. It's been great to see their companionship grow, as they're so different in not only how they look, but their backgrounds as well. And yet they have very similar hearts. They have an understanding now, and they're ready to find a ship to sail out on. It's clear we're on the verge of a great adventure, and it stirs in my mind. I try to think of how someone would have read this book when it was first published. It apparently was met with unfavorable reviews. We approach it today with a stigma attached to it. It's a great American literary classic, one that can be difficult to come to terms with. So in our minds, we know it's supposed to be great, And some can be left with the question, what is so great about it? Maybe your expectations uh, won't be met. Often people's first experience with this book is being told to read it as an assignment. I really dislike this stigma because while it is an incredible piece of literature and of history, we don't always get the opportunity to approach it organically. Back then it was just another book from a semi-successful author. One that pushed a lot of boundaries, but it held no stigma in its name. I tried to cleanse my palate when I picked up this piece. It's something to think about and play around with in your mind. The last we heard from Ishmael and Queequeg, they smoked out their in-room with tobacco while sharing their stories with each other, their life stories. They had a good night's rest. Now it's a fresh Monday morning. Ishmael sheepishly pays the bill with the silver that Queequeg split with him. They have been a few nights at the Spouter Inn, ran by a man named Peter Coffin. They are off in the early morning sea breeze, borrowing a wheelbarrow to carry their things with. Wheelbarrow is also the name of this short chapter. 
Remember that embalmed head that Queequeg gave to Ishmael as a token of their friendship? They decided to sell it off to a barber who would probably make it into a wig. The two new friends take turns wheeling all their belongings and are met with many a stare from the curious Manhattan onlooker. The two seemed at odds with each other, vastly different. It was a sight to see them on such comfortable terms. They didn't mind though, and they were content in their friendship. I think that everyone has had a friendship like this in their lifetime, something that they can compare to this. Maybe there was a new kid in elementary school who didn't speak your native language very well. He or she sat next to you and you were assigned to help them out for the first few weeks, to translate and show them around, all that. You two eventually come to an understanding, even though you don't speak the same dialect and most likely practice vastly different religions and home traditions. But still you communicate and smile at one another for this mutual understanding you have. An honest, innocent friend this is what Ishmael and Queequeg have found in one another. Q carries his huge harpoon, meant for use only at sea, onto land with him. It seems almost an extension of his own person. He's so comfortable with it. So you can imagine them walking along, one tall, dark-skinned, tattooed man, and one probably average height white man wheeling a big old wheelbarrow of a bunch of big bags full of who knows what you know towards the wharfs so people are staring on and wondering what the heck they're doing um now we come to two short stories on one page that can easily be overlooked in their simplicity but they carry a lot of meaning behind them it's another one of herman melville's playful depictions and he's asking us to take an even deeper look at the separation of society. Q describes the first time he ever saw a wheelbarrow. He was onboarding a ship and had a heavy chest of belongings to take to the hotel he was staying at. He wasn't exactly sure how to use it, but didn't want to seem ignorant, so he threw all of his things in it. Now imagine this. He picks up the entire wheelbarrow onto his shoulder and walks with it carrying it all the way up the hill, completely defeating its purpose, all to the bewilderment of his fellow shipmates. It's a funny thing to imagine, and something that really wasn't his fault. But he counters with another story, one that happened in his homeland, where an American captain paid a visit to their cannibal island, and during a ceremony, a large bowl of fragrant coconut water stood on an altar. The captain, completely oblivious to the way of the tribes, took the bowl of water for a wash basin and washed his hands in it. You'd better believe that Queequeg's people had the laugh of their lives at that. And these passages are all about society, your surroundings, culture shock. It gives you a perspective of both sides and how we're all foreigners in some land. And what's tradition to you may be alien to me. Another thing that's great about Herman Melville's writing is he gives us these examples, but of course, does not go on to explain their inferences. He kind of just leaves it there to be used if you want it, to be looked at deeper, or you could just enjoy the story. And that's where some of his magic lies. 
some of Herman Melville's romancing of the sea shows through here as well. It shows a great appreciation of nature, which I'm sure he felt deeply about. So they're crossing the harbor from New Bedford onto Nantucket Island. Ishmael takes in the view of the many whaling boats moored on the wharfs. He's feeling sentimental, the gorgeous sea air filling his lungs. His new partner by his side seemed to be feeling the same thing. Feelings of spiritual wealth. How they love the sea. How they preferred it over land, for land is marked with many a footprint. But how free and unblemished the sea is. The freezing morning air moves them along to their destination, the frigid waters bustling them about. As Queequeg and Ishmael stand at the frontmost part of the ship, taking in the glorious ocean morning, being splashed with the white foam of the ocean, their nostrils flared wide at the salty air. They had nearly forgot that there were other, more casual passengers aboard as well. Some of them stared on in curiosity. Before we hear what happens next, I'd like to read a direct quote from this chapter, spoken by Ishmael. A great, long sentence. As he views the many boats ashore. Let me describe to you that day on Nantucket. Huge hills and mountains of casks on casks were piled upon her wharves, and side by side the world-wandering whale ships lay silent and safely moored at last, while from others came a sound of carpenters and coopers, with blended noises of fires and forges to melt the pitch, all betokening that new cruises were on the start that one most perilous and long voyage ended only begins a second, and a second ended only begins a third, and so on, forever and for aye. Such is the endlessness, yea, the intolerableness of all earthly effort. Thanks for the inside, Ishmael. One of the onlookers is mimicking Queequeg, most likely the way he talks, and Queequeg overhears. He drops his harpoon and walks over to the young man, picks him up by the shoulders and tosses him straight up in the air, as if he were a small boy, but he doesn't catch him. The man barely lands on his feet. Of course, Queequeg meant no real harm, but the young man is scared half to death, runs over to the captain, explaining what had just happened. The captain confronts Queequeg. Ishmael tries to explain to him what the captain is saying, how he's nearly killed that lad, Q expresses in his own way that he's just a small fish and he wouldn't kill him as he has his eyes on much larger fish. The captain tells him to mind his eye, to watch out. In the midst of this confrontation, the same young man falls overboard and everyone on board goes into a panic. They stood shocked staring off at the side of the boat as if they were staring into the open jaws of a whale. But without a second of hesitation, good old Queequeg ducks down under the sail, snatches up a rope, the crowd panicking in the background. He secures one end to the side of the boat and catches the slack on the sail. He tightens it, securing the sail down and slowing the boat. He strips down to the waist and dives in a huge arc into the freezing foam in hopes of saving the young man. 
He swims about for a few minutes, his broad shoulders poking through the waves. Ishmael looks around, but sees no one to be saved. The poor lad seemed to have gone under. Q dives down and disappears for another couple of minutes. He rises out of the ocean, thrashing with one arm and holding tightly to the drowning young man. The boat picks him up, and the boys eventually revived. The captain apologizes. All passengers agree that Q is something of a hero. Ishmael thinks to himself after all of this, was there ever such unconsciousness? He doesn't seem to believe he deserves a medal or an award or anything for saving this young man. He only asks for water to wipe the salt from his brow. He puts on his dry clothes, lights his tomahawk pipe, leans against the bulwarks coolly. His eyes silently glaze over the crowd. He seems to be thinking to himself, it's a round world, cannibal or Christian. We all need to look out for each other. Good man, that Queequeg. Good man. It's a short scene, but a great one. We see more admiration of Q here from Ish. Now as we read, we're met with a two-page chapter entirely on Nantucket. It's Ishmael's or possibly Herman Melville's depiction of the island in wondrous descriptions. He claims Nantucket the owner of all earthly oceans. Through comparisons and references, he tells us the legend of how the island was originally settled upon by men of red skin. He tells us to look at it on a map, Nantucket, how lonely it sits there on the corner of the world. The legend I mentioned goes as such. A golden eagle swooped down on the New England coast, carrying off with it an infant Indian in its talons. The child's parents decided to give chase in the same direction the bird flew off with their newborn. After a dangerous passage on their canoes, they arrived at the island where they found the child's remains. They eventually settled on that island and thrived off the sea. By first catching crabs, then using nets they caught small fish, eventually pushing off the shores to catch larger fish, and finally mapping out the entire sea. Nantucketers would set out to declare war with the monster of the ocean, the largest and greatest animal to survive God's great flood. So like a mountain, and so powerful it was. As it thrashes about in the ocean, it seems to create floods of its own. Nantucket owns the ocean. It is his. Ishmael's mesmerized by its antiquity. I'd love to read this amazing passage to you from the end of the chapter, Nantucket. Speaking of the island, Nantucket, quote, Merchant ships are but extension bridges, armed ones but floating forts. Even pirates and privateers, though following the sea as highwaymen the road, they but plunder other ships other fragments of the land like themselves, without seeking to draw their living from the bottomless deep itself. The Nantucketer, 
He alone resides and rests on the sea. He alone, in Bible language, goes down to it in ships, to and fro, plowing it in his own special plantation. There is his home. There lies his business, which a Noah's flood would not interrupt, though it overwhelmed all the millions in China. He lives on the sea as prairie cocks in the prairie. He hides among the waves. He climbs them as Kenois hunters climb the Alps. For years he knows not the land, so that when he comes to it at last, it smells like another world, more strangely than the moon would to an earthman. With the landless gull that at sunset folds her wings and is rocked to sleep between billows, so at nightfall, the Nantucketer, out of sight of land, furls his sails and lays him to rest, while under his very pillow rush herds of walruses and whales. End quote. So we can clearly see Ishmael's love of the ocean. As they come on ashore, they're searching for an inn called the Tripods, one recommended to them by Peter Coffin. He says the owner's name is Hosea and has incredible chowder available. They eventually find the place and Ishmael's taken aback. A third ominous sign is presented to him. First to the Spouter Inn, ran by Coffin. Then the gravestone staring at him in the whaleman's chapel. Now he sees two large pots strung up by the front of this building, held up by two large wooden posts with a cross piece connecting them. It looked a lot like a small gallows, or a place someone would be hanged from. And there were two of them, it seemed. One for Ishmael, one for Queequeg. He can't even take his eyes off of them. The spouter in. The gravestone staring at me at the whaleman's chapel. Now these gallows, two of them. One for me and one for Queequeg. Oh... Am I being too paranoid? But these seem to be more than hints. Well, it's no good worrying about like this. Let's head on inside. A freckled blonde woman welcomes them. They figured she was Miss Hussey, wife of Hosea Hussey, and part owner of the tripods. It seemed Mr. Hussey was out, and she was in charge for the moment. Tripots, fishiest of all fishy places. The pots were always boiling with chowder. It was chowder for breakfast, lunch, and dinner until you had fish bones poking through your clothes. The entire building was decorated with clam shells. Miss Hussey wore a cod vertebrae necklace. The books were bound in shark skin. Heck, even the milk tasted of fish. She quickly but politely sits them in another room and asks them abruptly, clam or cod? Well, how could a cold clam be a whole dinner for two men? When Ishmael inquires about this, she seems only to hear the word clam and walks out yelling to the cooks, clam for two. A warm, savory steam is waved in by the door. They were soon presented with the incredibly delicious and well-seasoned clam chowder with miniature clams in it, pounded biscuit, and salted pork. 
It was an incredible meal. They went on to try the cod chowder as well. It smells so warm by the meal, he wonders if Clam has some kind of euphoric effects as he jokes with Q. A hearty warm meal can do a person a lot of good, especially in a harsh winter as this. The two friends enjoyed their meal. They're given a room, but Q's not allowed to bring his harpoon with him. After Miss Hussey tells him a story of a man who accidentally stabbed himself in her back room after returning from a four years voyage. Well, it'll be chowder for breakfast, surely. Now, we're gonna stop for a moment here. The coming chapter is called The Ship. It is a very, very sensual and important chapter in this story. Ishmael is introduced to a ship and its owners, a ship called the Pequod, a great whaling vessel that will be sailing out upon. However, in my first episode, I mentioned a method of writing Herman Melville presented to us in his book, one called Typology. Now, this is a very sensitive topic, very, to the point where I almost don't want to talk about it at all. Uh, the things I'll be saying, please don't hold them against me or to me. I'm aware that there are people in this world who have spent years studying this topic. Um, I'm going to tell you my understanding of the word typology and its uses, how it can be employed by Herman Melville and how it was, ex how it was accepted at the time, how it can change the meaning of a story, and how it was a way of Herman for checking our knowledge. We're going to also see Melville uh, dramatize different societal topics, such as man's effect on nature, business, industry, processing of goods, and other things of that nature. The book is a big one, and some are not up to the task of digesting it. Well, I will help you out on all that I can, so you don't have to do that. However, it is incredibly beneficial to your literary skills and just general knowledge to push yourself through these books. I'm a night reader. We are knights and how we approach these books with valiance. We're all capable of the same greatness. So cut down these walls, either self-imposed or not. Break them down and don't ever tell yourself I can't do this. Still, this book will not be for everyone. That's all right. Whatever you do, don't let a book get you discouraged. You will take a deeper look at these books. Try again and push yourself, saying, Hey, I can do this. I know this might sound redundant to the college professor. If that's you, I apologize. I don't mean to make this book sound like it's so incredibly challenging. But we are all at different places and different levels in our journey with literature. Some of us are teenagers, some middle-aged, all over the spectrum. I'm really trying to keep this podcast welcoming and open to listeners of all ages and capabilities. I hope I can achieve that. So, back to typology. The modern definition of it goes like this. Study of or analysis or classification based on types of categories. The most basic way I can describe it, and I apologize beforehand if I slaughter this, but... Typology, when it first came about, is a way for Puritans to have some sort of reference in their lives, a way for them to connect the Old Testament of the Bible to the new one, the old one foreshadowing events in the new. 
It was a way of people connecting these religious texts to events in their lives to interpret current events and how it would affect their future. Now, Melville does that. He makes these connections, refers to different names and stories from the Bible to help prove a point or paint a picture or to foreshadow his story. We're going to see some amazing examples of this in the coming chapter. And I'll do my best to explain them without losing the theme. So when we think of typology, we can think of it as a way of referring to the Bible or other religious texts or ancient societies in our writings. Using these references, which are not always blatant and sometimes obscure, it alludes to something further in the story. We've seen this with Father Mapple's telling of Jonah and the whale. It can easily be skipped over if you have no interest or prior run-in with the Bible. But when you read it, you can see how the author is using it to foreshadow. And not everyone will see the signs there. That's kind of the point of it, though. At the time this book was written and published, it was easier for people to understand these references. Now, this chapter, called The Ship, introduces this method in a very effective way. And I'll describe it to you the best I can. Try not to digress. I've been waiting the past three episodes to do this chapter. It's a very central and foreboding area of the story, and one where the mystery begins to open up. We can make connections. We'll start on this chapter, and when the moments present themselves, we'll discuss the typology, its meanings, and hopefully in the simplest terms possible. With that out of the way, let's dive in. Ishmael and Q, bellies full of delicious clam chowder, wake up in the hotel room of the tripods and begin concocting their plans to get out to the ocean. You'll remember the small black idol that Queequeg prays to. Ishmael ended up joining him in his communion. Well, that black little god has a name to Queequeg. He calls it Yojo. Apparently, Q had been consulting Yojo consistently, praying to him, asking him for guidance. Q felt the small idol was strongly insisting that the selection of the ship should lie wholly with Ishmael, that he should be the one to seek out the vessel. Q placed great faith in the small idol. Ishmael didn't really agree, as he had to ask Queequeg what the best boat to carry them out to the island would be, since Q had more experience. But Yojo insisted, and on top of that, Queequeg had a sort of religious fasting plan for the coming day, a Ramadan of sorts, a day of humility and prayer. Ishmael sets out, leaving Q fasting food and tobacco, a small idol Yojo warming himself on the kindled shavings. Ishmael ventures out among the wharfs. He comes across three possible vessels, the Devil's Dam, the Tidbit, and the Pequod. Pequod is a name of a tribe of Indians who once settled in Massachusetts. He checks out the Devil's Dam, first hopping over onto it, teetering about for a bit. He then hops over onto the tidbit, and finally jumps onto the Pequod. He immediately decides, this is the ship for us. We're now presented with a great description of the boat and its owners. The Great Pequod. I wish we had a visual. A rare, old, and weathered craft, says Ishmael, and yet the boat had been fitted with some newer bells and whistles. Comparing her 
a ship to a barbaric Ethiopian emperor apparelled with heavy pendants of polished ivory, also comparing it to a carved shield of an ancient explorer. And most interestingly, the boat was fashioned and decorated all about with whale bones, with whale teeth used as pins on the bulwarks. Any man who steered this noble vessel felt like they were holding back a horse of fire by its fearsome jaws. Noble, he calls it, yet melancholy. Ishmael looks about the deck for someone to acquire with about shipping out. He spots a small sort of temporary teepee. It was about ten feet tall, crafted also from whale bones. He spots someone sitting inside. It seemed whoever they were were taking refuge from the duties of commanding a busy crew. This man sat in a small wooden chair, full of curious carvings. He was of older age, the tone of his skin darkened from a many months sun at the ocean, a retired old sea captain for sure. Around his eyes were deep wrinkles which Ishmael recognizes one to have after staring into many a harsh wind out at sea, year after year, wearing the muscles around the eyes out. This man's name is Captain Peleg. Peleg is a name and character from the Bible as well, a very significant one. This old man is part owner of the Pequod and its former captain. Is this the owner of the Pequod? Suppose it is. What do you want from him? Well, I was thinking of shipping out. You were? I can see you're not from these parts, you know, Nantucket. You ever been out whaling? No, sir, I never have. Do you know anything about whaling? Nothing, but I have no doubt I'll learn quickly. I've been several voyages as a merchant, and I figured that- Damn the merchant service. Don't talk like that to me. I'll have you off this boat myself if you speak about the merchant service to me again. Merchant service, indeed. I'm sure you feel proud of that there, eh? Aye. What makes you want to go whaling? It looks a little suspicious. Are you a pirate? You've robbed your last captain, haven't you? Do you plan on murdering your mates while you're out at sea? Ishmael's taken aback at such accusations and tried to explain his innocence in all of this. He realized that this man was full of prejudice and rather distrustful of anyone he doesn't know, unless they were a local. So then, what makes you want to go whaling? Oh, I'd like to know before I even think of shipping you. Well, I want to see what whaling is, sir. I want to see the world. What whaling is? Have you ever laid eyes upon a Captain Ahab? Who is Captain Ahab, sir? Aye, aye, I thought so. Captain Ahab is captain of this ship. Oh, I'm mistaken then. I thought I was speaking to the captain. Well, you're speaking to Captain Peleg, that's who you're speaking to, young lad. It's my duty, and Captain Bildad, to see the Pequod is correctly fitted for her voyage, supplied with all her needs, including crew. We're part owners and agents. But as I was going to say before, if you want to see what whaling is with your own eyes, take a look at Captain Ahab. You'll find he only has one leg. 
What do you mean, sir? Was the other leg lost by a whale? Lost by a whale? Young man, come nearer to me. It was devoured, chewed up, crunched by the monstrousest parmacity that ever chipped a boat. Ismail was alarmed by his energy and excitedness in saying this. Also touched a bit by the strong grief he seemed to display while talking about Captain Ahab. Fair enough, sir, but could you know there was any specific evilness in that whale? I most likely would have guessed it was just a fluke or a freak accident. Lad, you sure you've been to sea now? Sure of that? Sir, I thought I told you I've been four years out as a merchant. Hard down out of that. Remember what I said about the merchant's service. Don't aggravate me. I won't have it. But let us understand each other. I've given you a hint about what whaling is. Do you feel up to the task? I do, sir. Very good. Now, are you the type of man to sling a harpoon down a live whale's throat? Then jump after it. Answer, quick. I am, sir. If I should have no other choice to do but so. Good again. Now, you not only want to go whaling, but find out by experience what whaling is. You also want to go see the world? Was that not what you said? I thought so. Well then, just step forward there and take a peep over the weather bow. Come back to me. Tell me what you see there. Ishmael looks over the weather bow. The boat now points straight out at the open, endless ocean. He returns and reports nothing of interest, just the horizon. Well, what do you think of seeing the world, then? Can't you see the world from where you stand? Ishmael feels a bit annoyed and confused, but his heart is set on whaling. He expresses again his interest in shipping out. And seeing him so determined, Peleg expressed his willingness to ship him. You might as well sign the paperwork. Get it out of the way. Follow me. They walk below deck and meet another character. His name is Bildad, also a name from the Bible. And he's the other half-owner of the ship. Ishmael describes him as Quakers. A Quaker, loosely, is someone of religious background that's devoted to peaceful principles. They believe that Christ has a direct working on your soul, and therefore, they reject formal ministry and set forms of worship. They commonly had Christian names, as we can see. Ishmael describes to us his understanding of these men, and of Captain Ahab, who we have not met yet but have heard of. It gets a bit confusing, but what he is saying is that though these men are generally peaceful, they were ferocious in their abilities at the ocean and would kill a whale without thinking twice. Now, back to Bildad's description. Part owner of the Pequod, retired whaleman, but he was quite different from Peleg, who didn't seem to care about serious things. Bildad was very well educated in all religious aspects and spent a great amount of time reading his Bible and he uses it as guidance in his life. He takes what he reads that day as sort of a guideline, and he holds fast to this standard. This man refuses to bear arms against any man, 
but when it comes to the Atlantic and Pacific, he's a vicious whale hunter. He wouldn't dream of spilling a man's blood, but he stands in the gore of a whale, unfazed. Ishmael ponders. He was a retired old man of 60 and spent his days organizing and outfitting the ship. Ishmael tells that, back in the day, Bildad was once a bitter and hard captain. He eventually hears stories of Bildad and how his crew, after returning from a voyage under his captainship, all had to go directly to a hospital from such harsh conditions he kept them in. He seemed to be a little hard-hearted for a Christian man. He heard also that, as a man of God, he never swore at his men, but somehow got incredibly hard work out of them. He had some way of intently looking at you, this Bildad, until you felt completely nervous and involuntarily began reaching for a hammer or some kind of tool and go to work like mad, never mind what it was. Now, looking at Bildad, he was sitting straight up, his hat beside him, his legs crossed stiffly, his vest buttoned up to his chin, glasses on his nose, as he was absorbed in reading from the Bible. He says he's our man, Bildad. He wants to ship out. Oh, does he? He does. What do you think of him? The man quickly looks back down and begins mouthing the words he's reading, obviously preoccupied. Pelag throws open a chest and brings out a pen and ink. He seats himself down at the table. Ishmael decides it's about time he discusses his payment. He's aware that in the whaling business there are no wages, just shares, or as they refer to them, lays. I'm going to use those two words interchangeably, just for simplicity. So, shares, wages, lays. These shares uh, differ depending on the difficulty of your job out at sea. He's aware that, being new to all of this, his share would not be very large. But considering he wasn't completely green, he was used to the sea somewhat, could steer a ship, tie a rope, all that. He figured he would at least receive something along the 275th share. The 275th share was what people referred to commonly as a long lay, or not that great of a share. But to Ishmael, it was better than nothing. And if they had a lucky voyage, it might pay for his clothes and three years' food while he was on board, which is included in his share. This is not the way to get rich quick, that's for sure. But Ishmael is not one to chase princely fortunes, and he's content if the world is ready to put up with him. He figured 275 is quite fair. Heck, maybe he'd even be offered the 200th. He's a decently strong man. Ishmael is listening to Bildad mumble away at his Bible. Speaking of lays, he hears Bildad read these words. I quote, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor dust rust or corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Unquote. Now firstly, what is this verse saying? Obviously that money and objects in life are not important, but spiritual fitness is. To not chase riches in life, but to seek spiritual well-being and serenity 
for physical things can be stolen or will waste away. But your spirit is forever. So why is this verse included? Well, Ishmael recognizes the verse that Bildad just so happens to be reading at the moment. Ishmael knows its meaning. We'll see some importance here. Peleg interrupts him, asking what share they think they should give to Ishmael. Bildad responds, saying, the 777th share should be just fine for Ishmael. Now that's a large lay. He continues reading the now ironic passage. It seems Bildad was determined to not let anyone gather a fortune or lay up treasures for themselves on this earth. An exceedingly long lay or a bad share. We can see how Bildad uses the Bible as his logic behind this. This whole portion is a play on typology, or how it can be used or ignored, and begs the question, should we be looking at these books uh, typologically? You know? Peleg asks Bildad if he's trying to swindle Ishmael, but Bildad continues reading his passage, ignoring him. Peleg says he's going to put him down for the 300th share, but Bildad tells him, you've got a generous heart, Peleg. And he makes it clear to them that if they were to be generous to Ishmael, they would most likely be taking bread away from widows and orphans. They begin to argue a bit over this. Peleg gets worked up and cusses at Bildad, walks out in a rampage, cools off for a moment, eventually comes back. Of course, this is all awkward for Ishmael. Captain Peleg, I have a friend with me who wants to ship too. Shall I bring him down tomorrow? To be sure. Fetch him along and uh, we'll look at him. And what lay does he want? Oh, never mind that, Bildad. Has he ever been whaling? He's killed more whales than I can count, Captain. Well, bring him along then. Ishmael signs the papers and departs, feeling great about his choice, but as he's walking and thinking, he is wondering about Captain Ahab. Now this part's important as we're going to dissect the Bible verses and the name we've just heard in the story, or that we're about to hear. He felt odd that the captain he'd be sailing under has not shown his face to him. He feels it's important to have a look at him, at least, before committing himself to his hands. He turns back and finds Peleg, asking him where Ahab can be found. Now Peleg goes on to describe Ahab through the lens of typology. Herman Melville, the author, also wants us to think about and wonder, is thinking typologically a hindrance for us, or does it help us understand God's order? Should we be thinking about this kind of thing while reading fiction? These are all burning and very good questions that have no concrete answer. Peleg tells us that Ahab is sick in some way, although he does not look it. He stays shut up inside his house. He's one who does not speak much, but when he does speak, you listen. He's been to colleges as well as cannibalistic islands. He's above the common man. Ahab of old. And he describes Ahab as a crowned king. A very important reference that we will piece together. So, when Peleg refers to Ahab as a crowned king, Melville is inviting us to think typologically. Peleg is also testing Ishmael's knowledge. Well, Ishmael calls his bluff, and he knows the reference he's making. 
This is very essential. The crowned king. In the Bible, the man Ahab was a king of Israel who sinned and did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He allowed worship of idols and was hostile towards a prophet named Elijah. Now you're going to want to remember that name as well. And remember this specifically. Elijah was a prophet to Ahab, one that correctly predicted Ahab's untimely death. Ishmael knows this story. And when Peleg refers to him as a crowned king, Ishmael calls his bluff by saying, quote, A crowned king, a very vile one. When that wicked king was slain, the dogs, did they not lick his blood? Unquote. Ishmael is saying he knows that Ahab in the Bible was not a good man. So why is Peleg making this reference? Well, Peleg withdraws from speaking of Ahab typologically or biblically and tries explaining it another way. Peleg tells Ishmael to never say anything like that again, not on the Pequod or anywhere. He goes on to explain why he's named Ahab, saying it was a foolish, ignorant idea of his widowed mother who died when he was only one year old. Although some old homeless man had recently told Peleg that the name Ahab would prove prophetic. He says that this is a lie though. He knows Ahab well. He sailed with him. He's a good man. Christian man like Bildad, but a swearing good man. He's been out of his mind for a bit, but that's caused by the pain of his lost leg. He tells Ishmael to go on home, not worry too much about Ahab's name or why he has it. How bad can it be? He's got a wife and kids after all. Ishmael walks away full of thoughtfulness. He was wondering wildly about this man, Captain Ahab. He felt impatient at the mystery, but his mind was also crawling with other things like excitedness for the adventure ahead. And so he forgot about Ahab for the time being. To wrap up this incredible chapter, we have three new characters, two that we have actually met. The old and hard Captain Peleg, part owner of the ship and retired whaleman, and Captain Bildad, a religious man who also partly owns the ship and whose job it is to employ it. He's a little bit stingy, but he has a good heart. His heart's in the right place. He really wants to make sure that everyone on this voyage is going to be have all the food they need, have all the clothes they need, everything that they will ever need. He's make sure that it's outfitted with it. Um, and we have heard of Captain Ahab, a pained man we have yet to meet, who has lost his leg to a whale. He's a great, well-rounded man, we've heard. And yet there's something dark and wrong with him. Ishmael has very dark premonitions about him. Peleg also said that some street prophet said Ahab's name would prove prophetic, like I mentioned before, meaning that it would connect to the biblical story and come true as it did then. But Peleg assures Ishmael that it's just a name given to him by his crazy mother and that these things aren't true and needn't be looked at deeper. But Ishmael cannot shake the odd feeling like something terrible will happen. So we've heard a lot. We've read a lot. Uh, we've got a lot of information. Um, and these two new characters are real interesting. Um, they won't stick around for a super long time, but they'll be around for the next few chapters. So you'll get to know them a little bit more. Um, coming up, we're going to see Ishmael come back to the inn and find Queequeg doing his uh, Ramadan. Um or a day-long type of fasting. It's another one of their 
uh, funny friendship stories that's going to come up. Um, and then we're going to have a run-in with a homeless man, a very mysterious homeless man who claims he knows some things about Ishmael's future and about Ahab's future. Um, how he knows these things, we don't know. And the way that wraps around is really interesting. It's really cool to look at. It's some incredibly fun foreshadowing to read. Um, so come back next week for that. Uh, as far as the show goes, um, I'm looking for more reviews and you know more ratings and stuff like that. More shares, Facebook likes, and follows. Um, I have something coming up soon that I want to do in one of my episodes. I'm going to have quite a few guests on. This is going to be average guests, average people I've met and talked to from around the world that enjoy different kinds of books. And we're going to have them come on and talk about their favorite book and why they'd recommend it and what they love so much about it and their experience with it and everything like that. I'm going to get some input from you know, all around, uh, some other night readers around the world. Um, and if you want to be a night reader with me, uh, send me a direct message on Facebook on my night reader page. Let me know what your favorite book is and that you're interested in possibly being on the show as a guest. And we'll absolutely get that set up for you. There's going to be a lot of books we're going to be doing in the future after this one. Um, so I really hope you guys are enjoying what I've been doing so far. I've been putting so much energy and passion into this. Um, I hope you guys like the music, the storytelling, the voices, everything like that. If you have any feedback for me or recommendations or favorite parts that you've heard so far, please let me know. I really, really appreciate it. And I want to make this podcast the best that it can be. You guys know by now what I'm about. Please listen to my first couple episodes to get a background on my beliefs and literary outlooks. I've said a lot of things that I'm proud of in those episodes that really show you how I feel about all of this. I have a deep passion for all things literature, and I feel my purpose is to share this with anyone that I can. I believe in physical books. I have aspirations to publish, but I also want to inspire anyone that I can to pick up a book that might seem challenging, or go write yourself a story or a poem. Don't ever be afraid of what someone might think, or of being judged, or put down, or criticized by someone who might be a professional or I don't think I don't believe in anything like that I don't believe in criticism in that way I believe that all art and all poetry is beautiful and should be expressed it's a way of expressing yourself and how you feel in a way that you might not otherwise be able to so don't ever be afraid to express yourself don't ever be afraid to write yourself a story or a poem I believe we write and tell stories to gain a deeper knowledge of ourselves and the world that surrounds us. I believe we read to gain insight and to learn more about ourselves. I hope you will all pick up this story and follow along with me. If you don't want to or you can't for some reason, just tune into my podcast and you'll get all the information you'll need about the book. I'll take you through it as I have been. We're going to go all the way through it. This podcast was written and produced by Dylan C. Thank y'all for listening. I'll return next week. So go on. Flip your pages. Drop your swords. Pick up your pens and reading spectacles. Let us read on.